All right. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Grease the Wheels. That means it's your Uncle Jimmy standing here, or sitting, excuse me, behind the microphone at the Rock and Roll Garage, bringing you your weekly prescription of Grease the Wheels. Hey, today we got something special going on for you. It's going to be a uh, informative podcast. I know you hate those kind, but guess what? You're getting it anyway, okay? Um, today we're going to start talking about brands, and we're going to talk about a specific brand of automobiles today. And then, uh, you know, in the future, we're going to bring you some more, uh, shall we say, current brands, uh, only because the brand that we have picked for today's show is one that is actually no longer with us. And it actually breaks my fucking heart because of idiot upper management white collar jerk offs decided that this brand should actually go away. Uh, one of the things you'll find interesting is that in the past, people who seem like they were more intelligent than people who are running these companies now actually were able to make a very good go of it with this company. And so to keep you from guessing anymore, we're talking about Oldsmobile. And there's a very good reason why we're talking about Oldsmobile, and that is because I, your Uncle Jimmy, am an Oldsmobile guy, just like the guy in Christmas Story. I'm not a Baptist. I'm not a Catholic. I'm an Oldsmobile guy, right? Okay, so now joining me on the podcast today is the little heard from producer, and that would be my nephew, Eric, who does a fabulous job with the production and the editing. Believe me, he does a fabulous job of editing, because if he didn't, you wouldn't want to listen to this. It's garbage when I get done with it and he slices out the uh, fat and the grizzle and makes it into something that you guys seem to like which still kills us both <laughs> I don't understand it anyway bit, yeah so say hello Eric how's it going grease the wheels nation and glad uh, to be here of course I'm your uncle Jimmy and uh, we're gonna do a little show today about the brand Oldsmobile which most of us know is or was uh, at the uh, middle portion of its life, part of General Motors. Early on, it wasn't, and now it isn't again. And uh, we want to talk about where they were, how they got started, what happened that was good, and then what happened that was bad. Uh, we're going to get started today talking about where they got started, and that was in uh, the very late 19th century, the 1800s, for those of you who can't figure out what that means. Yeah, that uh, with always a gentleman. fucks me up, too. <laughs> What's that? That always fucks me up, too. It's like No, oh, it does. It's me, the, too. I'm just it's like, the 19th this... century, but it's the 1800s. Yeah, and the 20th Weird. century was the 1900s. It's like, well, okay, but where was that first century? Well, they couldn't call it the zero century, you know? Was, you know, the hundreds, maybe? I don't know. They could have called it that, probably. So this whole idea for the show actually came from a tangent that you went on, and it was it, it made me laugh a little bit too hard. You were wailing on Henry Ford for being just a little bit of a one-track mind, which, you know, he kind of fucking was. Well, he was a visionary, but then all of a sudden he fucking turned that shit right off. It's like, oh, yeah. hey, I foresaw the future, but, you know, I had to come back, and I didn't see anything beyond that. Yeah. It's like, hey, so, we got the Model T. Everybody should be happy with a Model T. Okay. And actually, it's kind of funny that, you know, we started talking about Henry Ford because uh, he actually didn't invent the mass production process known as the assembly line. That was actually our boy Ransom Eli Olds. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, he was called the schoolmaster of the automotive industry for like the first 
probably 30 or 40 years, really, he had, he had come up with the idea for having uh, one worker do one job to every car. And in his particular version, though, the assembly line didn't move, the workers did. So Henry did uh, change that around a little bit, had the, uh, the actual product move, and the workers stayed in the same place. Yeah, that's a way fucking better way of doing it. Because, like, could you imagine having to, wa- uh, uh, like, you'd be walking, like, 10 miles a day in some of these factories, like, easily. Well, it, you know, I guess it would depend on what operation you had. I mean, if you were a guy carrying windshields all day, you'd be pretty fucking tired at the end of the day. But a lot of these cars didn't even have windshields. So that part was really wasn't a problem. So, so yeah, anyway, 1897, uh, Ransom Eli Olds founds the Olds Motor Vehicle Company. And they were, they were in Lansing, Michigan for a, a real long time. Turns out they ended up making over 35 million cars throughout their run which 35 million that's that's pretty good yeah it was like 106 years or something like that was it 100 107 years yeah 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 well they uh they first actually started out in detroit and in in the beginning in the auto uh, industry uh factories were built out of wood which they figured out quickly was kind of a bad idea because if they caught fire they burned like a wooden automobile factory. <laughs> and no shit, seriously, uh, his factory in Detroit, uh, I believe it was on Woodward Avenue even, burned right to the ground early on. And so he just said, you know what, fuck it, I'm from Lansing, guess where we're moving. So that's where they ended up in Lansing. And subsequently he started a whole nother company that also was uh, founded in Lansing later on. And this is actually the wild part because you know, you're thinking to yourself, all right, how hard is it to start a car company? Ask Elon Musk. It's pretty fucking hard to start a car company. And he, a Ransom Olds, he started two. And they were running at the same time. Yeah, and well, he had nothing to do with Oldsmobile at that point. But uh, the thing, too, is that he started one completely from scratch. And no one had ever really started anything even remotely similar to it. Ever, he was like the what do they call him, Zeitgeist or whatever. It's a he. He was the OG uh, automobile factory guy. He was he was the guy who was the first. He uh, so he didn't have anybody. And this is you know Elon has people he can call up at you know Ford and General Motors and just say hey geez uh you know how do you put a wiper switch in without wrecking the steering column and they're like oh shit that's easy we've been doing that for a hundred years. But uh, Ransom didn't have that. He didn't have anybody he could call and say, you know, I'm having trouble getting the engines in and uh, not scratching the the firewall. And they're like, oh, well, just put a fucking blanket over it, you know, and take it off and walk it back down the line and put it on the next one. Oh, okay. You know, he didn't have anybody that could say that to him or that would say that to him. You know, he, you know, he went and he asked people how to build cars and they they came to his house on a horse and he's they're like, how do you build a car? And they go what the fuck's a car (laughs) (laughs) and then you know really and then what's wild is uh ransom became that dude though that you came to it yeah he became yeah he became the schoolmaster he became that dude he he schooled he schooled the shit out of henry ford let me tell you something henry ford didn't come up with the entire idea of the assembly line and he also didn't come up with major portions of it he did tweak it obviously and it worked out pretty well for him but uh because i mean fords are still out there right yeah seriously well do they, they stop making they stop making cars yeah. right <laughs> just trucks and crossovers I mean, just, 
just trucks. That's that's so ridiculous that the society today is is in a mode where they just want trucks, you know, with all the carrot eating, granola crunching, Birkenstock wearing tree huggers out there, you know, like oh save the planet and then drive home in a fucking great big fucking SUV. It's like kind of nuts, you know. What kills me though, and, and this was I took this right out of the uh, the research. Oldsmobile became the first quote high volume gasoline powered automobile manufacturer when they produced 635 cars in one year. Could you imagine 635 well, cars being high volume? Yeah, but you got to understand it. 635 was 633 more than anybody else had ever fucking yeah, built. Pretty much. So, I mean, yeah, you know, you line them up, 600 cars, that's a lot of fucking cars. I mean, shit, I think that there's that many cars on our lot at the shop I work at, but, <laughs> but uh, that we're also not building them, and there's 650 cars on every car lot and every dealer and every shop on the strip where I work. So, uh, yeah, some, everything's got to start somewhere, right? Exactly, and where Oldsmobile really hit the ground running was the Oldsmobile Curved Dash, and this is actually the first mass-produced car. Fun fact, it actually was, there was a prototype of it in his factory in Detroit, and they pushed one of them out as the, as the building was burning. They're like, yeah. oh shit. <laughs> yeah. We need to be able to rebuild this. And when I went to the... Uh uh, was it the 100th? I think it was the, might have been the 90th. I went to the 90th anniversary uh, show for Oldsmobile in Lansing back in 1997. Or, no, it would have been 1987. No, it was 1997, excuse me. It was the 100th anniversary. I went to the 100th anniversary show that they had in 1997, and there was a curved dash 1902 Oldsmobile cruising the streets with all of the other Oldsmobiles, you know, the, the, the 50s Oldses and the you know, the 442s and, and the Hersolds and, and all the 98s and 88s and whatever else they had. And uh, that curve dash Olds actually broke down <laughs> directly in front of the Oldsmobile assembly plant on Rocket Avenue, uh, the M assembly plant. And some mechanics from the plant came out and helped them fix it. Get the fuck it out of here. kind of crazy. <laughs> no, it's just, it, it's, yeah, it, no, it's seriously. And uh, I think it broke a wheel, and they needed a little help getting because they always carried a spare wheel, you know, something we don't do anymore. But uh, they scared, they carried a spare wheel, and uh, and they put it on. Yeah, it's it it was a it was a family, you know. Seriously, being having an Oldsmobile meant that you were part of the original American family. You know, so I think that people who don't people who don't have Oldsmobiles in their background at any point in time, whether their parents owned one or whether their brother owned one or whether they owned one, they don't know what I'm talking about. They're not going to know this feeling. But when you bought and you drove and you owned an Oldsmobile, you were part of a great American family. And Ransom Olds was, was the father. He was the, uh, the Svengali of that, you know, he was the Jim Jones of Jonestown, if you want, you know, and we, we, hey, we drank the Kool-Aid and we fucking loved it. We really did. They were great cars. They've always been great cars, even right from the, right from the fucking beginning. I mean, obviously they built a dud every once in a while. I mean, you can't build 35 million cars and have them all be perfect. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to get to the duds later. That's actually my entire experience with the Oldsmobile brand was a dud. Well, okay. Yeah. But that was after... 
That was after some fucking jerk-off white-collar fucks got their hands on the business and decided they didn't really like Oldsmobile. Well, speaking of jerk-off white-collar fucks, General Motors purchased the company in 1908. Yeah, thank you, William Durant, dick. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, you know, they were called Olds Automobiles, but everybody pretty much just called them Oldsmobiles just because... It sounds better. It really does. Absolutely. Now, actually, this next little bit, um, they found one of the... They, there was a barn find of one of these cars, and it had something like like 12 miles on it. So the 1910 Limited Touring is uh, sort of the Mercedes S-Class of its day. It was huge. It cost $4,600, which at the time was roughly the... Roughly the cost of a three-bedroom house, and it had a 60-horsepower, 11.6-liter straight-six. 11.6 That is 707 inches, cubic inches of displacement. That thing must have had pistons the size of your head, Spider. Seriously, like, that's, that's huge. And I think they found one of these in a barn, and it had, like... The original oil still in it. Or what used to be oil. Started out life as oil. <laughs> now it's actually gone back and it is now a dinosaur. Yeah, it turned to gum. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they had literally no roads back then. So if you buy something like that and you try to go somewhere and you get to the edge of town where the roads are a little less traveled and you put that heavy ass piece of shit on, <laughs> on one of these fucking muddy backwards ass roads in Michigan you're just like yeah I think we're gonna go home Mabel <laughs> we're gonna walk oh, really why <laughs> it's only yeah, it's only another four miles to mom's house yeah but it's four ruddy shitty muddy miles and this thing and weighs, I don't feel like pushing yeah and this thing weighs a I don't ton. feel like pushing <laughs> even though it's made out of yeah, wood yeah it had to be heavy I mean think about an engine that's 707 cubic fucking inches it probably weighs fucking 2,000 pounds all by itself. Oh, easily. I mean, I mean, it's got... I mean, I don't know how many cylinders that was. It was, was six. It was a straight it, six. <laughs> pistons had to be the size of bowling balls. Pretty much. I mean, literally. And it only made 60 horsepower? Yeah. With a, with a, with a well, Bosch Magneto starter. Fuck, Kias make more horsepower. And fucking rear defroster makes more horsepower in my car. <laughs> so, you know, we've talked a little bit about how Oldsmobile was this incredibly forward-thinking company. In 1937, I know that's kind of a, a big leap, but not a whole lot of shit was happening in the 20s car-wise. But in 1937, Oldsmobile brought out a four-speed semi-automatic transmission called the Automatic Safety Transmission. And actually, it was built by Buick. Well, Buick's always been like a twin brother to the Oldsmobiles. And if you, you know, I mean, if you're familiar with what Buick's back then used to look like. And even up until Oldsmobile disappeared, Buick's and and Oldsmobile's were basically the same car, really. You know, they would use the same frame, same floor pans, body work. The body work would look different. At one point, they had their own engines, which were monsters. And they had a, a V6 that was turboed that put them kind of on the top shelf for a while there but uh one of the things that that you you missed in this story and and i don't want to say oh you didn't do your research but uh in uh the very late 20s everything was booming i mean everything they were called the roaring 20s yeah or the or the gay 20s oldsmobile was tasked by general motors with starting a whole new division of cars and uh they started putting the finishing touches on them in the very late 20s and came out with a, a, a vehicle 
that was built entirely inside the Oldsmobile plant, but it was a whole new uh, division of cars called the Viking, and it debuted in 1930, about half an hour to 45 minutes after the Great Depression that started. That is some shit so, timing. I mean, it was it was such a catastrophic failure that I honestly have never seen one, and I don't think I've ever seen one for sale. I don't even know how many they made. I know very little about it. I know that they did attempt to start a whole nother car division for General Motors. It was an Oldsmobile thing. It was in their plant. It was their baby. And they came up with this thing. It was called the Viking. I don't know anybody who's owned one or seen one or really has a lot of knowledge about them. I mean, it, it was kind of swept under the rug along with you know, the, the other catastrophic failures of automobile companies in the very early 30s due to the depression. Even, you know, Ford and General Motors suffered the pinch of the depression in the 30s to the point where they just didn't sell shit. You know, they had to lay people off and they didn't build as many cars. And I, a lot of car companies failed. Uh, some of the bigger ones were able to hold on because of assets they had, uh, but they, they were greatly uh, reduced numbers of cars built and sold, obviously due to the Great Depression. And one of them was this Viking car. I think it lasted for two years. It never found any kind of audience whatsoever. No, no customers. I mean, it just nobody had any money. It was all ether money at the time. And the stock market just said, "Yeah, you know, we've had enough of that." It crashed. It said, "See you. We're out of here." Everybody's money went away, and nobody had any. And it, it was just a horrible time to really exist as an American. A lot of stuff went away and Viking was one of them. And But Oldsmobile managed to survive obviously because it was gen part of General Motors along with Buick and Cadillac and Pontiac. I think at the time it was still, it was changed its name to Pontiac from Oakland. Uh, that's one of the things that, and, and it's probably a more catastrophic failure than the Edsel. Well, yeah, was. because, we, you know, we've seen an Edsel. Yeah, and Edsel's existed. There was a lot of, there was probably the same adjusted for inflation. I think they probably spent as much money as Ford did on the Edsel as they did on the Viking. So that failure set them back. And uh, eventually, throughout the 30s, as the economy will always do, it fixed itself. Just not going to stay bad forever. You know, it's going to be good, and then it's going to be bad, and then guess what? It's going to be good again. Especially when you got to beat that scamp Adolf Hitler. <laughs> yeah, well, that that really did, uh, that's really what woke, woke America up, not just uh, the automobile industry in itself, but, but America. I mean, before World War II, we were kind of like, uh, you know, we were about as powerful and as important in world affairs as maybe England or, or even France, you know, or Germany, even really. I mean, as as far as as far as being geopolitically involved, we were not. Fortunately, towards the end of the of the thirties, we had to step it up. So, speaking of the uh, end of the thirties and into the forties, for the nineteen forty model, Oldsmobile uh, became the first auto manufacturer to offer a fully automatic transmission called the Hydromatic, and it was uh, four speed gas pedal and a brake no clutch that was really the beginning of the end of the manual because this was sort of seen as a as a luxury feature that still is it still is you do, it doesn't require any kind of manual dexterity to drive a car anymore and it, i think it should <laughs> well i believe i i think you're right i it should not be 
as easy as it is to drive a car, I know that that's counter counterproductive for the uh, for, <laughs> for the car manufacturers. It's counterproductive for them. I get it. You know, I mean, you want your car to be easy and and fun, maybe, and and you know, user friendly. But it's too user friendly because we've got people out there who can't. You know, they're, they're booger-eating morons and they're driving a car around, you know, and they can't figure out how traffic lights work and they don't know what keep left means and shit. So, <laughs> and uh, we have Oldsmobile to thank for the automatic transmission because if, if every car had a stick, probably a good quarter of the population would have to either ride a fucking bike or walk to work. Plus, I... Or ride a fucking horse. Plus, I gotta be honest, the hardest thing in the world is texting and driving with a stick. It sucks. I've tried it. It is not easy. Well, you you, you find a gear, and then you go a certain speed, and then you just text, and then <laughs> you have to change speeds. Plus, they have cruise control, so what do you, you know? You don't even have to touch a gas pedal. Oh, mine just text all day long. Mine didn't. <laughs> the last manual transmission car I had had roll-up windows. I, I am honestly surprised when I get a new car and it has a stick in it. I mean, we really go, ooh, it's a stick. It's like, wow. Sweet. It's like, oh, there's a there's $100,000 in gold in the back seat. <laughs> yeah, but it's got a stick. <laughs> oh, man. It seems to be everything that says competition on it. Yeah, so. pretty much, especially with your brand. So then all of a sudden World War II comes along, yep. right? What happens then? So the last pre-war Oldsmobile rolls off the assembly line on February. Okay, so I've got three different sources saying three different days on when the last pre-war Oldsmobile rolled off the line. I have February 5th, February 7th, and February 9th, 1942. Well, okay, think about this for a second, okay? The government says, hey, February 5th, you stop building cars. Uh, and everyone at Goldsmobile looks at each other and goes, okay, Pearl Harbor just got bombed. We got to go to war. Uh, 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 okay. But then somebody high up in Oldsmobile says, wait a fucking minute. How long is this going to go on? Because on February, in February 1942, things did not look so good. And so somebody who was at the head of these companies might have said, well, maybe I better get my hands on a new fucking car before we shut the fucking stuff off. And so they... They built a few more, you know, for this guy or that guy or this guy. And so that's, that's why fucking devious. <laughs> well, but yeah, if you were if you were working at Oldsmobile or any other car manufacturer for that matter at that time, you had to think, wow, Jesus Christ, the, the Germans are beating the shit out of everybody, including us, and the Japanese are bombing our air bases on our side of the Pacific Ocean. It's like, hmm. This could be a while before we get new cars. So I'm going to be a selfish prick and have them build me a brand new Olds 98 before we shut all the shit off. And that way I'll have like the newest car in the neighborhood for probably, who knows, five to ten years. Because <laughs> no, it, I tell you what, in 1942, things did not look good. So anyway, yeah, then obviously Oldsmobile switches over to making arms. And what exactly did they make? Well, uh, they have a big, huge display in the uh, Olds Museum there where they they built uh, very big guns and and shells and munitions of all sorts and they they built a lot of parts that got shipped to believe it or not other car factories owned by who knows who and they those parts went into big trucks the the deuce and a quarter trucks that pretty much helped win the war in Europe and then uh, uh, they they built like differentials for them and stuff, and they also built uh, technology that that came about during the war 
as far as armaments go, uh, they built rockets and not big rockets, you know, not like a V2 or anything. They built the small rockets that you could sling under the wing of a P-47. And when it saw a train cruising through France with troops and arms on it that were belonged to Germany, they could put a few of these rockets into the side of it and make it stop and kill all the soldiers and blow up all their munitions and, and basically help us win the war. So they made rockets. And that's one of the reasons why when they uh, came out with the overhead valve V8 later on in the 40s, at the end, uh, they called it the rocket motor because they had been building rockets and rockets were in vogue. You know, I mean, we were trying to build rockets to, to do all sorts of things, deliver nuclear weapons and maybe a man to the moon. We didn't know that at the time, but so rockets were kind of like the uh, iPhone of the day. You know, they were like the big thing. Like having a beard. I guess. <laughs> I'll probably end up cutting that out. That was a shit line. That's <laughs> all right. You're allowed. It's November, right? Yeah, it is November. It's Movember. Yeah. It is Movember. Get, I could probably grow one. I mean, I've got a couple of days of growth going already. Get your prostates checked. But, yeah. <laughs> it's a finger up the anus, but it's for a good cause. <laughs> yeah. So as the... I've had it done. <laughs> So as the war wound down, production of cars resumed on October 15th, 1945. And basically what they did was they were making 1942 Oldsmobiles again. And that was what you got. Well, you see, here's the thing, too. You gotta, I don't think that a lot of people could wrap their mind around this because I have trouble with it. First off, every car manufacturer in the United States, every single one of them stopped making cars. They stopped. They didn't make cars. They made tanks and ships and boats and guns and bombs and planes. They made armaments, okay? So for th four years, three, three years really, uh, three and a half years, four years, they didn't build anything but armaments. They didn't build cars. Now, these are car companies, okay? So it, it's like saying to a guy who makes candy bars, hey, we need you to make, I don't know, pick something. We need you to make iPhones. I mean, I make candy bars. Well, they're like iPhones. I mean, you know, they're disposable. You put them in your pocket, they melt, whatever. But uh, I mean, it's, how do you how do you do that? How do you even do that? How does the government come in and say, hey, I know you make cars, but I want you to make bombs. And, and then they go, okay. It was just a different time. I mean, that shit could never happen now, never. You think about the commitment to uh, keeping freeing the world from tyranny it's tough to it's tough even for me to wrap my mind around it and yet I've you know I've known about it all my life and I'm an older guy but you have all these companies who are they build cars and then all of a sudden they're not and so we get to the point where we are winning the war and uh, actually it was about July of 1945 the Germans were done the Japanese were on their knees although they didn't know it and so they said okay you can guys, you, you guys can start building cars again and they're like, are you sure? You know, because I mean, even over like uh, at the Chrysler plant, and this is, I digress quite a bit, but at the Chrysler plant in, in Michigan, one of the Chrysler plants, they were casting crankshafts and connecting rods and pistons for Pratt & Whitney radial engines to build B-29s, bombers, okay? And these guys were working 24-7, 365. They were, there was three shifts, they were making these things. They were making these things. They were making, they were just banging them out like they would bang out cars. And then when the Japanese surrendered, they came in and they tapped all these guys on the shoulder and said, you know what, go home, we're done. And that's it. And then they came back in 
a couple of weeks later as I gave them some time off and they said, okay, we're going to go back to building cars. And so they were like, well, okay, but everything's set up to build this. So it took a while. It took a long time for them to actually get back to doing what they do. But it really wasn't that big a deal because they always change models anyway. And so they just changed to a model, not from a model. They just changed to uh, what they had been building. And so, and, and the, the deal was too, uh, the American public had been deprived of brand new cars for about three years, three, three and a half years, as I said. And they had money. They had, a, in some cases, some of them had a lot of fucking money because they worked their asses off for three and a half years. And the only thing that they could buy was food and spare parts for the car they already had, which probably by this time was... That car was fucked at that point. It was just about, it was done. You know, I mean, the cars didn't last that long back then anyway because the production, you know, the, the production values and, the, and the, the tolerances of all the components on those cars was just not so good. Was not, I say it's not so good, not so good when compared to today's models, yeah. obviously. I mean, the precision the precision has obviously become more of a, a thing we, we shoot for now as opposed to uh, then. So you got a guy who's driving around a, a 41 Ford and he's got, you know, maybe 150, 200,000 miles on it. It should have been done three years ago. He's still driving it. He finally gets a chance to buy a new car. He doesn't give a fuck what it looks like. He doesn't care if it's a 42 model that's masquerading as a 46 or a 47. He doesn't care. He just needs something new. And he's earned it because he built he built whatever he built for the war effort and it worked. It won. We won. You know, even that we didn't really win the war. We helped win the war. So yeah, then, you know, the the war's over and they're serving these sort of leftovers, I guess. But then 1949 rolls around, and as uh, as you stated, the Rocket 88 came out, overhead valve V8, rather than their flathead straight eight design. Which you know, you you look at sort of the engineering behind it, and it's like, well, yeah, why why wouldn't you have overhead valves? They they work so much better. And basically, this 49 came out, and it immediately immediately caught on with hot rodders and stock car racers. Pretty much everybody loved them. And actually, they didn't really change the design until the mid-60s. Yeah, the uh, the original rocket engine, the uh, the original Olds rocket engine, really flipped the industry on its side. The overhead valve, it, and we take it for granted now, having overhead valves and overhead cams and stuff, but up until that point, the valve was in the engine block itself, and the head was just like a cover that they slapped on top of it. And it worked. It wasn't really very conducive to making a lot of power, although Americans, we love yeah, power. We are, so does everybody we are else. Good but, at figuring out how to make shit go faster. Well, I mean, there's there's people out there who made the uh, flathead Ford scream, but it usually involved uh, lowering the compression ratio by milling the head or maybe even in some, place, some cases casting a new head design. But it was simple because of a flathead Ford V8 head was just basically a slab of, of steel and you milled it however you wanted and you put a couple of holes in it for some spark plugs and pfft, there it was, it was on the engine. It wasn't as intricate or even remotely as elaborate as like a twin overhead cam head from something you see every day now. So the overhead valve allowed for much greater efficiency and in 
as a byproduct. Power. There was kind of a debate going on in the industry throughout the end of the 40s that, uh, and it was actually championed by Billy Mitchell, who was a uh, airplane guy. But he said, if automobiles had higher octane fuels available, they could make more power and run longer and better and faster and everything. And so he's really the father because the gasoline wasn't that great of a quality back in those days. I think a lot of people don't know that. But when gasoline, they started to refine gasoline in a much better process, they were able to make the octane go up. They were able to get more power out of it. And subsequently, they were able to lower compression ratios and get even more power out of them. And that's where the Rocket V8 came in because you could lower the compression on those a lot easier than on a flathead style engine. So once the, uh, and actually it was Cadillac at the same time showed up with a overhead valve uh, V8 engine thanks to a, a gentleman by the name of Kettering who was called the uh, the boss, Boss Kettering. That is such a great nickname. Yeah, and, and he was uh, duly rewarded for his... Uh, for his engineering prowess with the overhead valve V8s of the Cadillac and, and Oldsmobile, the Rocket, uh, that he was he became a philanthropist, and you'll see his name on buildings and hospitals and that, like the Kettering Institute. That's the same gentleman who brought us the overhead valve engine. And so, you know, if you have to get to the hospital real, real fast, and you're using an overhead valve uh, engine, and the hospital is a Kettering hospital, when there's several of them. Uh, you can thank one guy for all of that. So. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah well, you know, uh, th- that's the thing with the uh, the titans of our industrial era is that once they got a lot of money, they decided they would do good with it, which is always, you know, it's the heartwarming portion of their story when some portions of their story are not so heartwarming. You know, they were they were ruthless getting to the top, and then once they got to the top, they softened up quite a bit. So. It's, a, it's a good way to live, though, you know? Andrew Carnegie, same I way. suppose. Yeah, you know, you have shit named after you, Carnegie, and the Rockefeller Center, and, you know, and so, and, and Rockefeller was himself was one of the more ruthless pieces of shit from that era, and yet at the end of his life, he was so well known for his philanthropy. That everybody forgot that he lit the Ohio River on fire. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they forgot all the shit that he did that was bad. He used to hand out dimes, and in today's economy, that would be like handing out 20s. That'd be all right. Yeah, well, that's the way people felt about it back then. I mean, he he handed them out to everybody. Yeah, what was he? What was he worth? Like adjust in inflation, it was like, it was something like ninety billion dollars at the height of. Uh, no, it was it was yeah, more adjusted, than that. Yeah, yeah, it adjusted for inflation, he would still be the richest man in the world by today. quite a bit. By a, by a lot. Yeah. Well, he invented gasoline. <laughs> so I mean, think about. I mean, if you had to go back with a time machine and invent one thing and become rich from it, you'd probably pick gasoline. Well, and what was wild was gasoline was the byproduct. Gasoline was the garbage from the oil refining It was product. the byproduct of making yeah. kerosene. Yeah. And, and they would, he would just, that wasn't a joke. He would dump it into the river next to one of his refineries and the Cuyahoga. And it would routinely light on fire. Uh, it floated. How freaked out would you be if you're sitting there in the middle of Ohio, you know, you're just a farm kid or whatever, and suddenly the river that runs, you know, between you and your buddy's house or you and the market or wherever you got to go is on fire. Yeah, well, I think it was a common thing, actually. I think it happened yeah, it, a lot. Yeah, it happened definitely more than once. But still, I mean... But you know what happened was one of these automobile manufacturers called him up one day and said, hey, we... You know, and early, early on, they're trying to come up, you know, they're trying to invent the combustion engine, 
which actually got invented before the car did because you know obviously you see an engine you got a shaft spinning it's and you're like hey what can i do with this and then there's the car um but but people called him up they said yo uh what uh have you got any kind of fuel that i could put into this engine to make it go he goes i got this shit that comes out of the factory that i've just been pouring on the ground basically and uh it's really, really explosive. They said, really? Send us some. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> and they put it in a, they put it into an engine and it worked. I mean, it's okay. I think the first couple of times they uh, probably blew the fucking head off the engine. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty explosive. I mean, like, hey, what are you holding that head down with? Uh, some wood screws. <laughs> oh, well, we're going to have to use something a little... A little bit more stout than a wood screw. Okay, we'll use some 716 shredded rod. Boom! <laughs> okay. You know, that's that's how engineering is invented sometimes, you know. It's like, well, we did it wrong 10 times. Let's see if we can get it right. Then when you get it right, you're like, okay, that's how we got to do it. You know, it's like when they asked Edison about the light bulb. They said, well, you failed 2,000 times. And he's like, no, he's, I just didn't work 2,000 times. The 2,000th and first time it worked, and that was it, you know? Like, sometimes you got to fucking lose to win, like the Nationals. <laughs> Only at home. <laughs> yeah. No, it's cool. Yeah. Right? So, Oldsmobile enters the 1950s, and they took this whole rocket engine thing, and they, they cranked it up to 11. And... Yeah, the marketing was it awesome. Really, it was some awesome, awesome marketing. They actually changed their logo to um, the world and this rocket going around it. It was actually pretty damn cool. And some of the concept vehicles that they had coming out were, you know, oh my God, this was the rocket age. America was rocket crazy. And this, you know, this they had the big open grills that, you know, suggested jet propulsion and the the sort of rocket jet pod style taillights and i mean they were just they looked futuristic yeah in fact that some of them were called future futuramic well you think about what's going on in the 50s okay the uh the american public is uh fat with cash from working all through the 40s and so is general motors and they owned, you know, throughout the 50s, they owned like a 70, 75% market share, which is... Can you even imagine? No, it's tough to wrap your mind around it. Like every three out of four cars is a GM car. And and so they were just fat with cash. I mean, they were just rolling it in. And, and in, as a matter of fact, at one point during the 50s, people used to say, what's good for General Motors is good for the country really, because so many people were employed at GM plants and drove GM cars. It was just, it was a General Motors country. And uh, Oldsmobile was was a part of this huge whole marketing scheme that caused other car companies to, to fold up. Uh, several car companies folded up in the 50s after thriving through, through World War II. I mean, Packard was a, a really good example. Uh, they... They built fine cars. They built really good cars. And during World War II, they actually built the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine for the P-51 Mustangs. And we built a shithouse of those. So they, you know, they did, they were very well off after the war, but they just couldn't compete with the General Motors and, and then ended up going away. Same with, same with Studebaker, who actually bought Packard at one point. Uh, there was a lot of other car companies that, that suffered during the 50s because of the crushing 
the, the crushing success of, of General Motors and Oldsmobile and Buick and Pontiac and all those. And, and some of those brands, I think Pontiac and Buick, even they didn't do as well as Chevrolet and, and Oldsmobile because Oldsmobile had, the, their marketing was to bring you a car that would kick their ass. Because that Rocket 88, that thing, a rocket, the Rocket engine in the 88 or the 98 or even the 76 early on, that, that, thing, would, that thing was just badass. It made twice as much power as everything else on the road and forced everyone else to make overhead valve engines too. The most famous of that group is probably the, the small block Chevy, which was really, 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 one more time, really successful uh, as well. Yeah, that's when when we end up doing Chevrolet, I mean, we could probably sit and talk for 45 minutes just about the small block and not cover anything twice, you know? That's, that's one of those sort of world beater products that really sort of defining an era and it's not a short era i've driven shit with small block chevys in it the the folks at, at chevrolet wanted to redesign the small block several times over the course of its existence and were throttled majorly because it was so popular uh, they did in the uh, mid 80s go to a two-piece or excuse me a one-piece rear main i do remember that uh, and then in the 90s, they went to a LT style 350. That's what they called it. And it had a reverse flow cooling and it had a distributor that was mounted on the front behind a water pump, which is an extraordinarily bad idea. Um, and it didn't really work very well, but it was okay because it, w it was so short lived. It, I, think, I think the OptiSpark lasted three, four years tops. And then we were all, then we all of a sudden became LS crazy and that was the total and complete redesign of the small block Chevy that they had been longing to do since the 60s and the, the nice thing about you know the LS engine just to go off on a tangent a little bit is that they got it yeah, right it's a very very powerful engine and uh, now they're plentiful and people are putting them in literally fucking everything <laughs> whether they should it's or insane. not that's yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's probably a space shuttle out there somewhere that's LS powered. I'm serious. <laughs> um, they don't fly anymore, so they just they need something to move it around, and they probably stuck a fucking LS point. Yeah, probably. He probably took it out of one of the fucking chaser trucks that they also don't need anymore. <laughs> so. so now we're on to Oldsmobile in the 1960s, and Oldsmobile really does sort of follow where the country is. You know, in the 40s, it was making guns, planes, tanks, bombs, you know, all sorts of all sorts of stuff that you need to fight Nazis. In the 50s, it was rocket crazy because we just scooped up a whole bunch of former Nazis who were now working for us. And in the 60s... Building rockets. Yeah, building rockets. And then in the 60s, everything gets sort of weird and experimental and fun. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Uh, you know, when you look at the uh, maturation, uh, that's not the word. If you look at the car industry and, and the way it evolved... One of the best ways to look at it is to, to take it into 10-year chunks. And from obviously from the 40s to the 50s, the automobile didn't change much thanks to Mr. A. Hitler and uh, Tojo and that group. But from the 50s to the 60s, they went from being tall and bulbous and underpowered to being, I would say, well-powered and lower and leaner in 1960. But then from 1960 to 1970, somebody shot the locks off and they they went crazy doing stuff that we 
we would laugh at now if they were to try some of this stuff now. You know, I mean, turbochargers, they're the norm now. But back then, it was voodoo. It, it was, was witchcraft. It was, it, it was. It was It was not something that, I mean, what, what was even turbocharged at the time? Some some planes were turboed, but it was not It was not really well-known technology. It, no, all. I mean, superchargers was, had been around for, well, shit, 30 years at this point. Yeah, they... Yeah, superchargers, and and there's a vast different. You know, actually, they both do the same job, but they're, they're vastly different in how they do the job. Uh, super superchargers were installed on airplanes during World War II because speed was uh, something that you really desperately wanted when you had a Focke Wolf 190 chasing you. But uh, and and the uh, the Super Fortress, the uh, B29, was supercharged each engine and made it. An, an extraordinary amount of power so they could carry a lot of bombs and uh, hopefully win- end the war which they actually ultimately did by just carrying one great big bomb <laughs> but turbocharging was a really ancillary kind of a, a technology at the time but Oldsmobile had if you look at their history and you you know how they did things they were really innovators they were very uh, experimental in a lot of things that they did there was a lot of different things that the Oldsmobile manufacturer did in an R&D style, which was not really that heard of at the time. Uh, you know, a lot of companies didn't have an R&D department, a research and development department. They just designed something, they built it, they put it into production. There was really not a lot of research and development that went along with a lot of stuff. But it was because of the, the rocket engine and the hydromatic transmission that Oldsmobile was looked to to kind of come up with new shit and uh, come up with new stuff that would make a car go faster or, go, or get better economy or be easier to drive. And, and they rose to the challenge in the 60s big time after coming up with uh, you know, the, the automatic transmission and, uh, and the uh, overhead valve V8 engine. And they brought us turbocharging. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, but if you're a company as big as GM, you can almost have an entire brand dedicated to R&D. You know, you, you said it, yeah. they had 75% market share. If you have, you know, five cars or five different makes, you know, you can have an Oldsmobile that's just, it's out there doing crazy shit like the 1962 Turbo Jetfire. Yeah, it's a it's an aluminum V8 engine with a turbo on it. And even though now we have lots of those, this is, this is fucking 50 years later. In the 60s, this was as unheard of as landing a man on Mars. You know, someday we'll land a man on Mars and it'll be no big deal. Like landing a man on the moon is no big deal now. But then it was, it was out there. It was, it was freaky, you know, and uh, they went and did it and actually built it and put it out to the general public. And of course the general public was too stupid to keep the uh, rocket fuel, the additional rocket fuel necessary for the car. That's what they called it. Uh, They had water injection because the turbocharger raised the cylinder pressure so much that detonation was a, a real big problem. So they put water injection on it, which is another innovation they came up with. And uh, the car would run decently enough, had good power, but people would let that reservoir for the rocket fuel run dry and then the car would detonate and so it's self-destruct because detonation is definitely bad. If you're listening to this and you're a technician, you know that detonation is definitely no bueno. Uh, you don't want it. So that was the demise, pretty much, of that experiment. But it was successful, except for the unknown element of the general public. 
Yeah, and actually the um, the the two fifteen V eight net. I think I think this was GM's first car that made one horsepower per cubic inch. Because it made two hundred and fifteen horsepower. Uh, no, actually that was a small block Chevy back in the fifties that did that for the oh. first time. They had a two eighty three that they put uh, fuel injection on and they raised the compression ratio and they got two hundred eighty three horse out of a two eighty three. Oh. It was a little earlier in the 50s, but uh, a little late, uh, later, late 50s, but it was a little earlier than that. They actually did uh, get that magical one horsepower per cubic inch, which seems ridiculous. Yeah, yeah I know. Now now it's so, it's like, are you kidding me? You know, we got Ford Fiestas out there with, you know, 90 horsepower per cylinder. Yeah. That that AM, yeah. that little AMG hatchback, it's a four-cylinder, and it makes like, like 345 horsepower. Yeah, and the one thing that's going on with the cars now is they're so safe that when you get a teenager who buys one of these things and drives the shit out of it and, and slams into something, he lives instead of dying. <laughs> so it's like, well, you go ahead and be stupid. We'll uh, we'll figure out how to keep you alive. <laughs> well, speaking of slamming into stuff, sort of the next big 60s, I'm going to say that this was going out on a limb for them, uh, was the front-wheel drive 1966 Toronado. And... I mean, now most cars are front-wheel drive. You have to pay, you know, more to get one from a brand that's rear-wheel drive. Then they were all rear-wheel drive, and this front-wheel drive Toronado was like, what? Yeah, I I don't know what sparked that particular uh, innovation. They learned a, a hell of a lot about how good a front-wheel drive car could be. Because face it, if you've driven... Uh, a rear-wheel drive car and a front-wheel drive car in poor weather or in conditions where you have poor traction, you're going to find that the front-wheel drive car helps to maintain stability a lot better than a rear-wheel drive car, which is exactly the argument against it in some cases, okay? If you have a rear-wheel drive car, you can do things with it which are... Fun. Well, let's just call it what it is. (laughs) They're fun. fun. Thank you. Yeah, you know. I mean, literally... I mean, there's a video of a guy I used to work with going down uh, a, hi- a highway in the middle of a snowstorm all sideways, and it earned him a nickname, the, word, the worst best driver in the world, <laughs> you know, because he's, he's moving, he knows what he's doing, he's moving forward, but he is going sideways because he has a rear-wheel drive car. You can't even do that with a front-wheel drive car. There's no way for the back end to say, hey, I'm going to go, and the front end just says, okay, well, I'm along for the ride. So they figured out a lot of different things the half shaft they had to kind of uh, mess around with that and figure out how to make that work and uh, they made a a special turbo 400 transmission where the torque converter runs a chain and the chain goes to the rest of the transmission which is mounted alongside of the v8 engine and then there's two half shafts coming out of it Uh, they figured out that that's not really the most efficient way to actually build that sort of arrangement but uh, they had invested a lot of time and energy in it and it was able to withstand a lot of power. It was very uh, stout, I guess you would say. And so it lasted for a long time. It, am- it, definitely, it definitely amateurized itself uh, over the course of its production. I think it, they finally went away from the uh, V8 Turbo 400. It's, it's got another name, I think it's a 425. They finally went away from that front wheel drive arrangement sometime in the 80s and actually went to a transverse mounted engine in the Toronado towards the end of its uh, production life. But initially, yeah, it was a, and it was a beast. I mean, the original, the original 66 Toronado with a 425 engine had 
close to 400 horsepower. Yeah, this isn't exactly and like, so, you know, your younger brother's Hyundai. No, not at all. This thing would pull a dozen Hondas backwards if you hooked it to them. This, this, thing, this thing was a, a monster. And early on, there was a lot of trouble with the tires and the alignment because, uh, you know, you, you ramp this thing up and the tires all of a sudden go out of camber and you're roasting the inside <laughs> edges of them with 400 horse, you know. So, but they worked, but these were problems. This is why you do experimental things like this because you encounter problems that you've never encountered before and then you solve them. And so when you go design, when you go to design a new car with the same sort of arrangement or with the same sort of uh, engine transmission layout, you have all these problems solved. You know exactly what to do. So uh, it, was a, it was a huge uh, experimental learning lesson for them and it happened to be a success as well. Uh, the Tornado was extremely upscale and i remember a friend of my father's always used to buy them and uh, we rode in them quite often actually and uh it, it, he was always someone who enjoyed the finer things in life and the tornado was definitely one of them uh, i i have very fond memories of riding in his car he probably had a new one every year to be honest with you he, was, he had uh, that kodak money <laughs> <clears throat> he had the Eastman Kodak money that was uh, all over the place in my hometown of Rochester, New York, back in this, you know, back, well, back in the 20th century, to be honest with you. I mean, it wasn't until, until it wasn't until they invented digital photography and wiped themselves out, which is. We could do an entire podcast, just honest to God, just on that. But yeah, the, uh, yeah, it was straight out of Mad Men. And I got to tell you, as an Oldsmobile guy myself, as somebody who has other I don't have any Tornados I have mostly cutlasses and in order to make those cutlasses really run balls out what we like to do is go and find somebody who has a Tornado with a 455 in it typically from 1968 or 69 or 70 and uh, see if we can get the engine out of it because they put the the most high output engines they had in the Tornados and uh, some of them they're you know they're they're always rated at like just a hair under 300 horsepower or hair uh, excuse me a hair under 400 horsepower because 400 horsepower was like the it was like the line in the sand you didn't want to cross it's like you can't put a car out that has 400 horsepower you know it's just it's deadly you know because people in the 60s were very closed-minded about automotive things in general and it, that mindset exists to this day i can still remember as a as a very young person that uh people who were allegedly in the know back then said that no one would ever be able to go nine seconds in the quarter mile and then when somebody did it they went well you'll never be able to go eight seconds in the quarter mile and somebody did it and then they said nobody will ever be able to go seven seconds in the quarter mile this is all in the 60s mind you no one would ever be able to go seven seconds in the quarter mile because you know everyone was out there dra every, literally everybody was out there drag racing in the 60s if you weren't surfing or fighting in vietnam you were drag racing seriously those and, are actually uh, three pretty damn good options. I mean, minus well, Vietnam, you know. <laughs> yeah, you take the Vietnam out of there and, you know. So eventually what ended up happening is these people who kept saying you were never going to go X amount of speed in a quarter mile finally shut the fuck up <laughs> because every time they set the benchmark. It got smashed. Somebody would come along and beat it, yeah. And now I think that they're in the, they're in the low threes now with quarter mile time. So it just goes to show you how closed-minded some people can be. And in the 60s, with these Toronados having these fucking monster 455 engines that just made fucking gobs of power. We used to go down and rip them out of there and throw them in our cutlasses and we would go out and just fucking murder motherfuckers on the street with them. It was crazy. I mean, they were badass, they were badass engines. 
And uh, I, I, in fact, I'm still trying to get my hands on a couple of them. I see every once in a while somebody's got like a, a 69 or a 70 Tornado that was their father's and they passed away. And it's been in the garage for 20 years. And, you know, they just want to sell it. And it's kind of rotted and mice have been living in it or whatever. And uh, it's, it's a shame because it was a very nice piece of machinery at the time. But now... I just want to rip its guts out, and <laughs> stick it, stick it, stick it in a four four two. You know, yeah. Taken out of context, that totally makes you sound like a serial killer. Yeah, well. that, that's gonna be, that's gonna be go into the uh, into the marketing blurb for this episode. <laughs> well, seriously, I mean, if you you know if you've got a cutlass of any vintage that takes a, a V eight engine, and I mean anything from literally nineteen sixty four to nineteen eighty seven, okay when they stopped making, or 88, I should say, because they built a, a rear-wheel drive 88 Cutlass for half a year called the Classic, the Cutlass Supreme Classic. If you have any of the Cutlasses from any of those years, you could stick a 455 from a 69 Tornado in it, and your friends will not see anything except taillights. <laughs> you, will, you, you will be a fucking monster on the street. I am not shitting you. And I've done it. I did it. I stuck a 455 out of a 75... A tornado into a 82 cutlass body put a turbo 400 on the back of it slung some dual exhaust on it and this thing was bad ass and as an added bonus i got some dual gate shifter from a 79 hearst Olds and stuck that in there and and so it was able to shift it correctly too fortunately the gas situation it used a lot of gas folks kept me from, <laughs> kept me from driving it too much and i ended up selling it but uh, it was fun to build let me tell you what that's because that's my thing. I love to build them. Making them is more f- making them is more fun than beating them. <laughs> I think you have the same. I think you have the same uh, concept with children, right? Yeah, making them is more fun than beating them. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't had to beat children. I, I don't think I ever beat you, did uh, I? Just verbally. Oh, uh, it was the one time the fl- it was the one time there was a mosquito on your chest and I slapped it <laughs> off your chest just about knocked you out <laughs> yeah we kicked the shit out of each other in the rock and roll garage it's actually just fight club yeah well it it, it manifests itself in a lot of different situations like the time i squirted oil on him with the loaded up cylinders in a in a three series bmw the uh he says i want to see what happens I'm like, okay here you go <laughs> yeah six pistons loaded with oil just shot out the spark plug hole and coated him like like uh, like that kid in uh, Willy Wonka. Pretty much, yeah. Who wanted to get dipped in chocolate? <laughs> that's actually exactly what I looked like. Yeah, that's exactly what you looked like. I wish I had a picture of it because I was laughing my balls. I do off. have a picture of it. Yeah, yeah really I have know. video. <laughs> you were, yeah. Till it goes all grainy because there was you know a quart of oil oil on my phone. So your dad's buddy who had the Toronado, if he was more of a if he had a papal attitude towards birth control, he probably wouldn't have had a Toronado, and instead, he would have had a Vista Cruiser. Now, this is actually another sort of interesting thing because this is the beginning of sort of the high-end family car, which, I mean, now that's pretty much all they make is really nice cars for big families. Yeah, and it's kind of amazing, too, that it came along uh, when it did because people had already been banging like crazy since the war ended and wagons were they were not well thought of a lot like the minivan now i mean if you meet somebody that you know who gets married and they have kids the first thing the wife wants after she gets out of the hospital 
popping out the first one is a minivan. And the husband's always like, oh, God, my friends are just going to murder my ass about having a minivan. And for my part, I always do. You know, I don't I don't let them I don't let them up. I don't let them have any any respite from that. It's like, oh, you got a minivan, huh? How many more kids are you planning on having? Will you shut up. <laughs> and there was I mean, the uh, post-war baby boom, you would think that everyone would have a wagon. But. We did. They didn't. I mean, wagons were great. They were kind of a luxury. My mom had one. My mom had a. Uh, well, I I say my mom. My family had one because we were a one-car family for a long, long time, and uh, which was one of the reasons that my mother and father sometimes didn't get along too well because she was at home and that was it. And she didn't go anywhere unless my dad was home, and which is okay because it, eventually she ended up having five kids, and eventually she did get a second car or. But uh, for a long time, they had a 57 Chevy wagon. And uh, I remember as a very, very small child riding in this thing and wondering how I was going to keep myself from falling through the fucking floor because the floor was rotted right the fuck out. (laughs) Welcome to New York. Yeah. and, And you know what? You know what a baby seat was? It was that little spot between mom and dad in the front seat where you sat if you were bad and you didn't wear seat belts. And if you had to stop fast, you bounced your head off the uh, volume knob on the radio, which would probably explain why your Uncle Jimmy is the way he is. Because I got bounced off a lot of fucking shit in in cars in the 60s and the 70s when I was a a wee lad. I can remember, especially uh, because we always bought cars that had no air conditioning and it would be warm. And so I'd have my head just about hanging out the window like a St. Bernard. And my mom would stop quick and there I am with my head wedged in a vent window. You know, and she'd have to... She'd have to grab me by my leg, and uh, you thought I was going to say something else, but she was going to grab me by my leg and uh, pull me out of it. And so I have an excuse. <laughs> I have an excuse. I, I survived a childhood where my parents smoked nonstop in the house and bounced me off the dashboard on a regular basis. So safety was not a catchphrase back then. That was one of the things that uh, came along just a little bit later. I mean, in, in the 50s, cars were not built with seatbelts. So when you go out driving around in your, you know, 57 Chevy and you get a ticket for not wearing your seatbelt, you go to court and you say, well, 57 Chevy did, never had seatbelts. So, and they throw the ticket out. It won't work for you if you're driving around in your uh, 2007 Hyundai, but uh, it works if you're driving around in your 57 Chevy. Didn't you guys have a Vista Cruiser at one point? I did, yeah. I had a, it was, it's kind of an odd story and I'll give it to you real quick here. I was eyeballing this Vista Cruiser at a Dodge dealer in in Brockport and uh, I just stopped and asked him about it one day and he said well yeah uh, a doctor owned the car and he dropped it off and he wanted us to fix it and I'm like that's kind of an odd choice he goes yeah we thought so too and uh, they had done some valve train work to it and uh, he never came back for it and it sat there for a long time I guess and so what they did was they f- faked his name on the registration because they had the registration and at the time the registration in New York was what said you owned it and there was no titles titles didn't come along until 1974 so they forged this guy's name on the registration the transferable registration and they sold it to me for 200 bucks and uh, i got it home and found that the turbo 400 transmission in the car didn't work so i changed it and it still didn't work because i'm an idiot and left the torque converter on the engine and uh, uh this is how this is how mechanics learn things okay by doing it wrong and what i what i had done was the car was equipped with a 350 with a turbo 400 because it was a wagon and i left the torque converter bolted to the flywheel and pulled the tranny off of the engine oh 
with the torque converter still on the engine and I can't even begin to tell you how difficult that was. Yeah. <laughs> and then later on, maybe, oh no, it was, and it, and of course it was like 20 degrees out in here and I don't have a jack. So I'm, I'm underneath the car with, uh, with this transmission on my chest, pulling it out. And then I got another one and I put it back in and that's how I knew that the problem with the transmission was in the torque converter because that was the only part that I didn't change. It still didn't run for shit. So I ended up scrapping it, but, uh, and then this is something that we did back then when something didn't work right, we just got rid of it, which makes me want to shed a tear now because we did, we did, we did have some time where we were able to drive that car and had a lot of fun in it. But, uh, cause I mean, I could put eight of my beer drinking buddies in there and drive around and run over election signs and snowmen and pumpkins. Lots pumpkins, of pumpkins are the best. There was one night we were coming back from the bar real late. We had a slightly elevated blood alcohol count and we were racing and my buddy in his V8 Chevy truck was beating my ass and uh, he was going probably 110 down the road we live on and he hit a deer. And I mean, he hit this deer straight on. This thing was standing in the road, perpendicular to the road. And my buddy came along at probably a buck and just hit this fucking thing straight on and it gutted this deer instantly in the middle of the road. I mean, there was, I, cause I came along uh, probably a minute later cause he was really beating my ass bad. <laughs> and there was a steaming pile of guts in the middle of the road, which I ran over with great glee. And, got... <laughs> and then down the road, probably about, probably about 300 yards. I mean, it was quite a ways was this deer that it was now dead and completely gutted. I mean, better than any butcher could have gutted it. And I'm sure its ribs were smashed to bits, so it wouldn't have been any good to cut up for meat. But uh, I get to my house, which is where we were racing to, and there he is with the front end of his truck all stoved in. And he goes, and, and of course he'd been drinking with us. So he says, I, I think I hit a deer. And I go, yeah, I hit that deer too. <laughs> What was left oh. of it? <laughs> oh God! But being but being uh, being backyard mechanics at the time, we just went to the junkyard the next day and got all new stuff for his truck, and he was good to go. <laughs> you know, I mean, there were, it was one of those trucks where there was thousands of them in the in the scrapyard at the time, and we just went and got a new grill and a bumper and a hood, and away he went. But uh, yeah, it was a it was a fun. It was a fun car to have, and and uh, because they had the the crazy rear windows in it, that you know when you sit in the back, you could look up and I don't know have the sunshine in your eyes all the time. We called it the Enterprise, and uh, we had a lot of fun in that car. It was really cool, and it held a lot of uh, a lot of beer and a lot of my beer buddies. As a, as a car, I think that Vista Cruiser was a success, and and I think a lot of people think the same way too now because they're s extremely popular. And as a matter of fact, I went to a, a junkyard just yesterday as we were recording this. I went there yesterday, and this gentleman had probably a dozen Vista Cruisers oh, wow. there, ranging in age from yeah, ranging in age from sixty-seven to seventy-two. Score. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you think that cars in Texas are in great shape, and uh, but they're sometimes they're not. They're just not. I mean, it does rain here, so it's not like a desert. I mean, it's not Arizona. When we get rain here, where I'm at. In Texas, it it rains in a biblical fashion. I mean, you get so much fucking rain, you start looking for an ark, and uh, you're asking the animals to pair up. I mean, it's that it rains that fucking hard. This cruiser would make a pretty good ark, though. Kind of got to give it that. Yeah, but I'd only want to put women in it. 
You know, I don't want to. I don't want to have just one woman in there either. I want to be able to repopulate the planet with every type. So, <laughs> we need a blonde. We need a redhead. We need a brunette, and we need all of you to have big kids. <laughs> Why is that? Because you're gonna have lots of kids. We got to repopulate a fucking planet here. Let's go. Come on, let's get it on. Bang a gong. So the last crazy ass thing to come out of the 1960s for Oldsmobile is the 442. Now this is something that you're incredibly familiar with. Well, the 442 was a kind of a stopgap answer to the GTO, and uh, uh, our friend John DeLorean came up with the idea of, of a big engine in a little car. Uh, which hot rodders were familiar with. I mean, you take a car and you make it as light as you can and you put a big horsepower engine in there and you're going to be kicking ass and taking names. It's it's pretty well known. I mean, you know, you get a big engine, lots of horsepower. Okay, great. Then you take the lightest, smallest car you can find and you shove it in there because as, you know, it's a, it's a physics thing. It's an engineering thing. Lowering the weight of a vehicle is exactly the same as raising the horsepower. So he took a small car called the Tempest shoved a 389 Pontiac engine in it, which was the biggest engine that they would let him put in there at the time. And then he stuck some letters on it that he borrowed from Ferrari, GTO, Gran Turismo Amogato. And uh, he thought that they would sell maybe a few thousand, five, somewhere between five and 10,000. They sold 45,000 of them. Kids couldn't get enough of this car. And Oldsmobile sees this, they're going, oh, wait a minute, what, what's DeLorean doing, that crazy bastard? Oh man, now we gotta come up with something. And in their catalog of things that they build, Oldsmobile had uh, what they call a B09, option B09 police pursuit package, which was a, a four barrel, four speed equipped, 330 cutlass, which was the best that they could do on a short notice. And in fact, you could get that option on a four door, you could get it in a convertible, and you could get it in a two door cutlass and they had to come up with a name for it. And because they've always numbered their cars instead of naming them, they decided they would come up with a number for it and they couldn't think of what number to come up with. So they said, well, it's got, what's it got? You know, I mean, they're, they're brainstorming the name for this car and they go, well, what's it got that sets it apart? I go, well, it's got a four barrel and it's got a four speed and it's got dual exhaust. And they said, okay, so we'll call it the 442. And they're like, okay, cool. And boom, they made up some little 442 badges. They stuck them on the side, on the front and on the back and out the door they went. And they sold they sold a few of them. They, they sold quite a few of them. Not obviously on the, the uh, volume, not the volume that they sold the GTO in, but they, they sold enough of them to say, okay, we're on to something Yeah, here. basically instead of building a car, I think they almost built a cult. Well, any, I, I gotta be honest with you, any car from the 60s that had a big engine and a small body, Mustang, Camaro, 442, Buick GS, uh, you know, the GTO especially, uh, Chevelle's especially, you know, even even Torino's and especially, especially, especially the Mopars, uh, you know, the, the Roadrunners, the Super Bs, the the Belvedere's, the Coronets, the Cudas, the Barracuda first, and then the Cuda, and any, anything like that, every single one of those cars has its own cult, really. And there's people out there and this is what's good this is what's crazy about people nowadays is uh you'll get people and i'm the same way okay i know some things about fords and mustangs and and everything else they built and the same with with mopars but you you get people nowadays they're so fixated on one 
brand and probably even just one car from that brand that they know absolutely every little fucking thing you could know about that car. They've probably, in some cases, you know, if they're so insane, they've met people who worked on the assembly line. They know uh, that in, on one particular day or another, they were in a good mood or a bad mood, and, they, and it, if it showed up in how they did their job. So maybe on one particular day, a car had a run in the paint on the left inner fender well, and the next day it didn't. I mean, it's, it's, it, the Corvette guys are especially insane about this stuff because they tried to attempt, they, they were the first ones to try to absolutely completely reproduce every little thing about uh, the manufacturer of their particular car. And they have talked to people who built them. They've visited the factories where they built them. They've looked at every other car built in within the same time period. It's really insane. We've gotten kind of away from uh, having general automotive knowledge and we have very 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 specific knowledge of one make kind of weird but i guess you know if you think about it also i mean you like what you like it's, you know the heart wants what the heart wants uh, you know if you're a hemi cuda guy that's all you want you know if somebody offers you a, a a rare model of a mustang like a shelby mustang or something and you're just like yeah i don't want that you know unless i can trade it for a hemi cuda <laughs> yeah. you know <laughs> I mean, that's that's the that's the way it's gone you know I'm an Oldsmobile guy. I know a lot about Oldsmobiles. I meet other people who know a lot about Oldsmobiles. I learn more and more every day sometimes. There's people out there who actually are experts in a specific brand and are well-known uh, for being an expert in that brand and actually are contacted on a fairly regular basis to verify that a car is, is, is what it says it is. Because as soon as you, as soon as you raise the, you know, the, the Mopar community has this the worst, I think, out of all of them. The Hemi Mopar, they only made, if you think about actual production, between 1966, I believe it's 1966. See, this is, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't know enough about this to, to talk accurate. You haven't drank the Mopar Kool-Aid, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, no, and I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to. Well, it's a, it's a high-dollar club. You, you, you have to pay the dues are real, especially high to get into that club. But between 66 and 71, they built the vaunted 426 Hemi engine that everybody wants and put it into cars. And they only built, I believe, around 7,000 through all those years. So just taking into account general attrition, there's probably about half left now that haven't had their motors jerked out, that haven't been crashed into a tree or caught fire or been totaled or whatever. So out of 7,000, you probably have 3,500 Hemi-equipped automobiles. Okay, great. So now you start looking at the models. And obviously, and, and these guys, will, they'll rattle off numbers like you've never seen before. They'll go, oh, well, you know, uh, this guy I know has a 71 convertible Cuda in, you know, uh, Panther pink or whatever, or Hemi orange. And uh, it's it's uh, one of twelve, and so that makes it extremely rare. And and the rarity shows up when they try to auction these cars off, or when they sell them, and they get over a million dollars for them. And if you were around back then, and I was very young, but if you were around back then, you know that when these Hemi cars came into the dealers, a lot of times the dealers had a fucking very hard time selling them. I mean, it's crazy to think about it now. You could roll into a Dodge dealer in 1971, or a Plymouth dealer, excuse me, in 1971, and buy a factory-built Hemi Cuda convertible for whatever it said on the sticker, two, three thousand dollars. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, at the most, maybe they were 3500 bucks. But turning 3500 bucks into a million, that's, into that's a fucking million? insane. It's insane. If I had a time machine, I'd go back, I'd, I'd build a great big climate-controlled garage, and I'd buy half a dozen Hemi cars and maybe some, you know, some ZL1 Camaros and other shit they couldn't give away at the time, and just store them. And then I would be a billionaire. I really literally would probably be a billionaire. I mean, some of this stuff. And then another one of the cars that's highly sought after is the the winged cars that they built, the Dodge Daytona and the Plymouth Superbird. And if you get one of those with a Hemi in it, stand back and let the money roll in. I mean, they're they're worth millions. They're really, literally worth millions. It wasn't too long ago, and I, I could be mistaken. I would have to go back and look and see what it was. But there was a Hemi car. I want to say it was a, obviously a super rare car, and it was super original, and it was in excellent condition, and it was perfect nearly all the way around, and actually garnered a, a $2 million sale price. So, you know, it it's crazy how the market, it's, it's, they're automobiles. They're a consumer product that were manufactured on an assembly line by people who didn't give a fuck. <laughs> and no, seriously, I mean, if you're, you know, if every day you have to bolt a, bolt a disc brake assembly onto a car, and every day you do it to 100 cars, after a while, you don't give a fuck what kind of car you're bolting that shit to. You just want it to be over, you know? And short of chopping your fingers off so you can get disability, you can't wait for it to end. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually it does end. So, you know, a Hemi Cuda comes down the line behind, you know, 600 six-cylinder equipped Cudas, and, and you're like, whatever, yeah. <laughs> you know? Really, you're, you're like, whatever, you know? If the bolt doesn't go in, fucking... Give it a couple more ugga-duggas and call it done. You know, it's you're, it's just nothing to you. It's nothing to you. And at the time, I remember very clearly at the time, to, you know, we're completely digressing from the story, but I mean, there was a Dodge dealer on the corner of a major highway in my hometown, and we would have to drive by there. My mom used to have to take me to get my hearing checked all the time because I had bad hearing. And we would drive by this Dodge dealer, and they had two, I, I see it in my mind like it happened yesterday, they had two Superbirds on their lot. Or they might have been Daytonas, actually, because it was a Dodge dealer. But they had two Daytonas on their lot. One was blue and one was red. They had the wings on them. They had the cartoon characters on them. And uh, I saw later somebody had dug up some newspaper ads where they were selling these things at under invoice because they could not sell them. Nobody fucking wanted them. Nobody wanted them. They sat there for, I want to say, a year and a half. They were there a long time. Nobody wanted them. And yet now, if you were to pick them up and they were in reasonable condition, they're worth half a million dollars. Each. Yeah. They're worth half a million, <laughs> at least. Yeah. Depending on what engine they have, of course. I mean, the the, the ultimate engine package for a Daytona or a Superbird would have been a, a Hemi with a four-speed. Probably very, very, very few of them were actually equipped with that, but that's what was valuable that's what's valuable now at the time. If you were actually considering buying one of those and you had a, a girlfriend or a wife at the time and, and they got in it and said, well, I can't, I can't drive a stick. So guess what? You're not buying, you're not buying a Hemi Superbird with a four speed, you know? And then later on, you can tell your wife, hey, well, you just cost me a million dollars. You're fucking poor. You know? I'm sure that would go over well. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but you think about it, you know, you, you, your wife or your girlfriend talks you out of buying something and then later on you find out it's worth a million dollars. You go, remember that car I was going to buy? I was going to finance it for $23 a month? Yeah, it's worth a million dollars now. 
Thanks a lot, bitch. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about your childhood, and that actually brings us rather conveniently. Unfortunately. <laughs> brings us rather conveniently to the 1970s, and we're talking about Oldsmobile in the 70s. We are talking about the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, they uh, if you've ever owned an Oldsmobile, and, and you have to, it, it's not something that, that we can even tell you about, but if you owned an Oldsmobile from the 60s or the 70s, and it was fairly newish, okay, it wasn't like 50 years old, so you, I mean, you really can't buy one now and get the same sort of feel that we used to get back then. But one of their advertising slogans used to be, there is a special feel in an Oldsmobile, and they were not wrong. That was truth in advertising right there for the first time ever, by the way. They were built to a higher standard, and it's well known by people who owned these cars then. They were a cut above everything else that GM was building and, and Ford and Chrysler at the time. They were very, very good, fine automobiles that were reasonably priced, which sounds like an anomaly now. You you want a nice car now, it costs you big money. You want a, an inexpensive car now, it's a piece of shit. It's garbage. But in the 70s, in the late 60s and, the, and throughout the 70s, Oldsmobiles were very well-built machines. They had a special ride to them. They worked very hard to make that happen too, by the way. It wasn't an accident. And uh, they, they, had, they, were, they were a high quality piece of equipment. They still used their own engines. They used the 350 Oldsmobile engine almost from the beginning of the 70s to the end of the 70s. And uh, they used the Turbo Hydromatic 350 and the Turbo Hydromatic 400, which were rock solid. Uh, there was always very little trouble with these transmissions unless you didn't keep fluid in them or you did something heinous to them. And even then they could be repaired fairly easily, you know, and they just did what they were supposed to do. And some of some of the Oldsmobiles from the 70s are not the best looking cars in the world. And that, you know, that's that's another thing too, is that they used to have kind of a, a unique look to them. But then they started to kind of look a little bit more and more like the other offerings from General Motors with uh, just some very slight trim option differences. But still the Oldsmobiles were different. And here's the thing too, in the, in the 70s, if you were looking for a new car and you had to research a new car, you didn't have the internet. You didn't have the option of listening to some jerk off on a forum somewhere go, well, I didn't like the car because I, I hit my head on it on the way in. Uh, you know, just dumb shit like that. You didn't have that. If you were researching a car in the 70s to buy, you would talk to people who owned that car. You would find people, you know, it wasn't, it was not uncommon to have people approach you in a parking lot if you had a car and you say, hey, how do you like that? How do you like that car? And they would tell you. And you had to read magazines and maybe a magazine editor or a, one of the people who worked for that magazine had taken one of those cars and, and driven it around and decided they liked it or didn't like it. Or in some cases, they just told you what they did like about it and what they didn't like about it, which is something that is gone by the wayside now because it seems like critics now find everything they don't like about a car, report on that, and never tell you what's good about it. Um, back in the 70s, that didn't really seem to happen that much. You would have somebody who'd say, hey, you know, the car had decent power and it performed exactly how it was supposed to and the brakes worked well and it handled fairly well. The downside is eh, the fuel economy wasn't that great or uh, there wasn't enough room for my uh, my brand new 27-inch TV to fit in the back seat, so I had to put it in a trunk. You know, dumb shit like that. But we used to actually have to read things and do our due diligence in a very different way than we do now. And so... 
when you talk to somebody who owned an Oldsmobile back in those days, they'd say, this is the best fucking car I've ever owned. And that was, that was very common to hear. That was very common. The quality control was top notch at Oldsmobile. The assembly lines actually moved at the Oldsmobile plant a little bit slower than they did in other plants. So the people who worked in those plants were able to more efficiently and properly install the components they had to install in that car without having to rush. The other end of that sort of uh, uh, story is that at the plant in uh, Lordstown, Ohio, where they built the Vega, they were attempting to build 100 Vegas an hour. And so when you had people who worked at that plant if a car went by and they didn't get a chance to install whatever it was they they needed to install, they just said, oh, well, fuck it, and the car kept going. And so because of that, the Vega suffered a lot of quality issues, a lot of quality issues, and ended up being uh, one of the worst things that General Motors ever built in the eyes of a lot of people who know these things. Um, some of us like them because they're small, and we get back to that point where uh, where you take a big engine and you put it in the littlest package you can find and it goes like a bat out of hell. And that's why the Vega is popular because the engine bay was big enough to hold a small block Chevy and boom, away you go. But their quality, the quality of the build and the quality of the components that went on the car were not that great. And all they had to do was slow the assembly line down so that these guys had time to do the job on every car and do it properly, which the, the gentleman at Oldsmobile had figured out. They figured it out. You slow the assembly line down, the quality of the product goes up, boom, happy customers. And you know what? It worked because Oldsmobile, and I believe this is still true to this day, was the only other manufacturer besides Ford and Chevrolet to sell a million cars. They sold a million cars, I think, in 77. And I think, again, in 78. And things then started to kind of taper down and other manufacturers caught up with them. And so the sales, uh, did they... They sell a million cars every year until '85. Uh, yeah, actually, their their all time uh, highest sales was in 1985. And you're right. I mean, basically, okay. people were just like, "We love these things. You know, we're we're gonna keep buying them." But the big thing, though, that actually came about in the mid '70s, OPEC. OPEC fucked over Oldsmobile pretty good. It really it fucked over all of the American automakers, but you know when you have a 455 cubic inch V8, that's kind of a standard thing. You're not going to be driving that car very much when you can't get gas every day. Yeah, it was a big problem. It wasn't uncommon for me in the 80s to find some of these early 70s uh, Oldsmobiles. Uh, I found probably about a dozen of them, uh, 98s and 88s with 455s in them that had. 40, 50, 60,000 miles on them because when OPEC decided to turn the spigot off or turn it down at least, they couldn't drive this car anymore. It got nine miles to the fucking gallon and gas was hard to get. It wasn't expensive yet. It's just hard to get. They plugged themselves into the laws of supply and demand and they choked off the supply and the demand was still there. And guess what? You didn't get gas on certain days. Your plate number had to have this is how they did it too they said if your plate number ends with a uh, even number you get gas on monday wednesday and sunday if your plate number ends with a uh, odd number you get gas tuesday thursday and saturday nobody got gas on friday <laughs> like uh, i don't i don't know how it worked i wasn't of driving age then despite what you all think yeah i remember before the before they pinched off the pumps so to speak 
because they were upset about what uh, about our support of Israel, believe it or not. Before they pinched off the pumps, I can remember going to the gas station with my oldest brother and getting gas for 29 cents a gallon for the Chevy pickup truck that we had. And uh, I, I can't even wrap my mind around that anymore. It doesn't cost that much to manufacture gas. It just taxes and who gets what price of a barrel of oil. And that's what it's all based on. And when you have great big engines with four barrels on them and you have to stop making them, you have to stop. So the big 455 engine stopped in 76 and then the uh, 350 stopped in 1980 80, 80 or 81. And all you had after that was a 307 V8 and then a various assortment of Buick V6s. And then they came out with a version of the Buick V6, which was transverse mounted for their brand new Cutlass Sierra, trading on the Cutlass uh, nameplate's popularity. And uh, did they sell a million units every year up until 85? I actually don't have any information on that, but they were uh, the top selling car by 1976. And they were they were up there. They were they were moving a hell of a lot of cars pretty much yeah, every as year. As a matter of fact, the fact that they were selling everything that they could build literally uh i mean they had they sold a million units in 76 and 77 they actually that actually put the kibosh on the Hurstolds. they were selling so many cars and selling them and just selling them like crazy that when hearst came along and said hey we want to make a Hearst Olds, they said not now we're too busy <laughs> basically new no, phone seriously. who dis <laughs> yeah yeah they, they called and they, they even built some prototypes which believe it or not i have actually seen and they were fantastic they were they handled great uh, and they, they they worked well within the constraints of uh, the smaller engines and they were they were awesome and they probably would have sold tons of them but only because they sold tons of the other you know non Hearst Olds models so that was one of the things that came along I mean, they were just so they were just such great cars and people were buying them like mad and and they just said well we're not going to build a Hearst Olds we don't need to we don't need to create any extra demand for price <laughs> yeah, right. you know we don't need to we don't need to clog up our system with this car that we have to send down the road for a shifter or a stripes or whatever, you know? So they didn't do it. And it's, it's a shame. And they finally did actually end up getting back to a Hearst Olds model in 79, which is a, a really nice car. I've spent a lot of time working on one and driving one. Uh, and, and it was at the time, it was the only General Motors intermediate, which were at the time still called A-bodies, that had a 350 cubic inch engine. Everything else was uh, either a 260 or a 307 or a 305. There was no 350s in any of those cars across the General Motors line. Not the Buick, not the not the Monte Carlo, not the Regal, not the Grand Prix. Just the Cutlass with the Hearst Olds option had the 350. It was kind of cool. And it showed up in the VIN, so you can't really fake those too well. The cars were available with a Hearst dual gauge shifter and T-tops and special wheels and special paint and they were gorgeous gorgeous cars and helped them continue to keep selling cars yeah and actually one of the interesting things about the late 70s and the demand being actually so high for Oldsmobiles is it actually created a big time PR crisis for them because people found out that the Oldsmobiles that they were buying had Chevy engines Buick engines, you know, all sorts of other engines. And it was really kind of a legitimate public relations nightmare for GM. Yeah, the actual the actual case that brought this all to a boil was a Cadillac owner 
who got a Cadillac with a three, with a 403 Olds engine in it. And to me, personally, okay, this guy must have been a stupid motherfucker because if you know anything about engines, you can look at a Cadillac engine from the era and it's pretty radically different than an Oldsmobile engine. It's radically different. Okay, great. But they stopped building Cadillac engines, I want to say 77, because they were not that efficient and they were never going to be able to make that engine get any better fuel economy than it did. So they just stopped making it and started using corporate engines, which is a terminology that they came up with later after they got a class action lawsuit about putting Oldsmobile engines into Cadillacs, as if there's a huge difference. And actually, in my opinion, and this, like I said, it's my opinion, the fucking Olds engine was way fucking better than the Cadillac engine was anyway. I mean, some people think, oh, you know, and, and, and you would think that people who bought Trans Ams would be in the same boat, and they probably should have been, because if you bought a Trans Am with a 6.6 liter, odds are you got a 403 Olds engine in that car. Um, if you had the four-speed or you had the WS6 option, you got a 400 Pontiac engine, which also didn't last much longer through the 70s because the Pontiac engines, again, were not really known for their efficiency and they couldn't get them to pass EPA standards at a certain point. And so uh, I want to say it was 81. They stopped building Pontiac V8 engines with the 301. And at the time they had been putting that dumb 301 engine into Firebirds and Trans Ams. It's like, what? But that's, that's what they had. That's what they had. If you, and even the 403 disappeared in 1980 as well, because it was just big. It was a pretty good engine. Uh, they had done some things to make the engine lighter which also made it a little weaker but uh, still pretty much for the most part they held up very well and the uh, Oldsmobile V8 and the Chevrolet uh, small block Chevy were the only two engines to really survive that era and be somewhat econ uh, somewhat efficient you know somewhat environmentally efficient anyway as far as uh, uh, tailpipe standards went we were moving towards six-cylinder engines and four-cylinder engines and front-wheel drive anyway and believe it or not this was a I don't want to say it was the death knell for Oldsmobile but it it took them in a direction that was radically different from where they had come from they weren't actually able to create a lot of excitement with a front-wheel drive v6 car I don't think anybody no, was. no it's not I don't think anybody ever I don't think anybody ever has as BB King would say the thrill is gone you know that's, that's what happened in the 80s. We had to become, and notably in the 80s, starting right in 1980 itself, the government decided that they were going to get involved with the building of automobiles and mandated that they have to have computers and they had to monitor exhaust emissions and they had to ha monitor misfires, which created uh, a deadly gas called carbon monoxide. And folks, uh, Whenever you get the government involved with something, you can be sure that it's not going to go well because they can't build fucking roads and they're going to try to tell General Motors how to build cars. And it, it kind of led, uh, if you ask me anyway, this is a personal opinion, it kind of led to the demise of, of a lot of things that have been good and right about America. Uh, when the government says, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that, the government doesn't know how to do any of that shit. The government is really in the business of... of preparing for and creating war and when it comes to building cars they don't have a fucking clue and they never have and they're never going to i mean we had a president a few years ago who said that he wants every car to get over 50 miles per gallon by 2020 or 2025 or something like that and that is that is just ridiculous 
it's literally not possible. You, you could do it, but the downside is that it's not something that anyone would want to drive. The government involvement really helped put the death knell to Oldsmobile in, in the very, you know, at the, be the very beginning of the death knell. It actually helped to uh, ruin them. That's just my opinion. And you go off on an angry diatribe about the government, next thing you know, I'm going to have the message. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, before... You need to come with us, Mr. Miller. We're going to neuralize you. <laughs> Great. Well, I could forget all the shit I used to know. <laughs> well, before the 70s were out, Oldsmobile still had some crazy shit coming down the pipe. And specifically, it was in the form of a 350 cubic inch diesel V8. Uh, now, we don't really need to talk oh, about this. Oh, yes, that, we do. We? we absolutely need to talk about this. Oh, God. They, uh, they took the 350 block and they tried to beef it up, which they did. They beefed it up and make it work as a diesel. And honestly, I remember working at the Olds dealer back in those days as a lot kid. That fucking car was popular as shit right off the bat because diesel fuel was way fucking cheaper than gas. And some a lot of farmers who use diesel in their tractors could just roll over to the pump and <laughs> stick their diesel fuel in it and away they went. And then... And then they, uh, they turned to shit because they weren't built well enough for the... Uh, they just, they, they, there was just a lot of things about the Oldsmobile Rocket V8 engine that were great as a gasoline engine that were not so great as a uh, diesel engine. And they suffered an extraordinary amount of failures and, in a, and actually ended up converting a, a great many of these cars over to gasoline powered cars. It was not uncommon at all in the day to find a, a diesel Cutlass or a diesel 88 or 98 with a gas-powered 350 Olds engine in it. They did that mostly at the dealer. So that was a, yeah, it was a... It was a pretty colossal failure. Yeah, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. But you know what? Uh, you can't win every time, and sometimes you got to try something. You got you to gotta try it. And, and you know what's funny is that the general public was really hungry for something like this to be honest with you but it just didn't work out it was it was terrible and actually i think the brand took a big hit from it and it's possible even that they didn't survive that to say that that was the beginning of the end for them in in and throughout the 80s they did sell a million in 85 but it started to taper off after that and for me personally the handwriting seemed to be on the wall when they came out with the 88 cutlass model and it was front wheel drive. And it was honestly one of the most god awful automobiles built, I think. In my personal opinion, I think this thing was terrible. Uh, they had problems with the rear disc brakes locking up and slider pins would seize. And they had these anemic V6 and four cylinder engines. And, you know, they tried to appease people with uh, futuristic looking dashboards and, and features that. You know, they, they were coming up with for all the cars, you know, uh, rain sensing wipers and, you know, shit like that. But the feel was gone, really. It just disappeared. I drove a couple of those cars and it, and I think you had one, didn't you? Derek? I did. I had a 1996 Cutlass Supreme and it was the worst it, fucking car I've ever owned in my entire life. <laughs> and I, I can yeah. say that completely affirmatively. I've driven a ton of stuff. That's the worst. It was just, to me, that car really isn't an Oldsmobile. It's just basically a, 
a, a Buick or a Chevy. I mean, it was, it was, it was so watered down by what they needed to do, or what they felt like they needed to do. And then here's the killer part. And people, different people will tell you different things, but they built, they built a Cutlass for probably 25, 30 years. And in 1978, they had redesigned the Cutlass to be a smaller car than the 77 before it. The 77 was a fairly large car. Yeah, by today's standards, at least. It was a midsize then. And the 78 Cutlass was a much smaller car. And it lasted in production for 10 years, which is unheard yeah. of. It's unheard of by today's standards, and it's unheard of by General Motors standards, too. But it lasted in, a, in its pretty much unchanged until 1988. Um, and one of the problems... Or, you know, I mean, some people would say it was a problem. I, I don't personally think it was a problem. But one of the things that people disliked about it was that it bore a very, very striking resemblance to the Monte Carlo, the Buick Regal, and the Pontiac Grand Prix of the era. And so people labeled them as cookie-cutter cars. And uh, I think that that's oversimplified and stupid because people like cookies. I like cookies, and I like cutlasses, and I don't care if they look like Monty SS's or I don't care if they look like Grand Prix's or Regals you know and there were some badass Regals out there at the time too as you recall the Grand Nationals and all that so it was it was the foundation for a lot of fucking very cool equipment that came from General Motors but they were rear wheel drive and they were super popular they were so popular that when they tried to axe the line in 85 the answer came back from everybody they asked Keep building the fucking thing. People love them and they're buying them. Why stop making them? And that's, I, I say to this day, why stop making them something that people like and they buy? Why would you stop? You know, if somebody likes something that you're doing, unless what's coming along is so phenomenally better, which in this case, it wasn't. It was not. In this case. <laughs> Can confirm. <laughs> no, in this case, the 88 front wheel drive cutlasses that came along after this car was done were a pathetic and anemic and just they were it was a surrender flag is it, what it really was. was that's the perfect way to put it we can't we can't fight the corporate uh, management structure anymore we have to do what they say because you know we 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 obviously don't know what we're doing you know here at Oldsmobile and uh, but the uh, the 87 this excuse me the the 78 to 88 cutlasses and I don't even care what year you get they're rear-wheel drive you can shove a fucking 455 in them. You can you can shove a Buick V6 in them if you want. Uh, you could probably you can buy parts to put an LS motor in them if you want. Some of them came with some outrageous options, which are all sought after highly. Uh, T tops, buckets, consoles, uh, tilt steering wheel, rally dashes, super stock two sport wheels, posi. Uh, you know, there was a few of them made out there with four speeds. The the uh, aftermarket has come up with uh, kits to make them four speed. If they're not, they, they'll hold big radiators. The air conditioning systems are easy to work on and work pretty well. They were R12, so you'd probably have to convert them. It was just the uh, magnum opus of the Cutlass line, the 78 to 88. And uh, I've owned several of them. Uh, like I said before, I put a 455 into an 82 Cutlass, and the thing was balls to the wall. It was awesome. Uh, I put a 403, which is a small block V8 engine, into an 82 Cutlass that my brother owned. And this thing was so fast 
that it scared him. And he's a, he was a state trooper, so they're pretty good at going fast. He said this thing was unbelievably fast. And uh, it was a great car, and it's still out there. Every once in a while, the person who owns it puts it up for sale, and I see it. I don't, I don't want it back. They've done a lot of dumb shit to it since then. But <laughs> No return policy. <laughs> no, it's unusual to actually build a car and have it continue to exist. A lot of times you build a car you, and you sell it. The guy beats the shit out of it or he scraps it or he takes the motor out or does something to it. But this one has existed with the engine that I installed back in the late 80s to this day. You know, so I must we must have done something right. But when you talk about those cars, they were super fucking popular, and they built a probably, if you had to guess, between '78 and '88, if you count all of them, uh, and I mean all of them, like Malibus and El Caminos and Monte Carlos and Grand Prix and Regals and Cutlasses. General Motors probably built a billion of them, and I, I mean that. I mean that honestly. Between all of those cars, all those makes, and all those styles, they probably built a billion of them. So they'll be around. You can find them. Uh, some of them are in terrible shape. Some of them have been fucked with so much that you can't even barely recognize what they are. Some of them have been preserved. Um, they still work. The parts are still available. They're cheap. They are cheap. You could do the brakes on them for a hundred bucks. And 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 quite frankly, they uh, it was the last rear-wheel drive car that that Oldsmobile built. I mean, the, the 98 and the 88 had all gone front-wheel drive by that time. And the Cutlass was supposed to be the last car that they, you know, they had the Sierra that they were building. But the Cutlass Supreme was supposed to be the last car that they built that was going to be rear-wheel drive. And then they built the new one, which was front-wheel drive. And it was supposed to be fabulous. And it wasn't. And that really marked their downfall. And from that point forward, moving into the... Uh, uh, 90s and into the next deck, uh, next century, they struggled to get back to where they were and never did. And uh, I, I believe in my heart that management fucked them over. They just didn't see the value of the Oldsmobile name. And quite frankly, uh, since the beginning of time, uh, and this is just a marketing thing, and this is the way people are, and sometimes people are stupid. And I include myself in that as well. I, I got to say, Oldsmobile has always had a problem selling cars where the name has the word old in it, okay? Young people don't like anything old. I remember when I was young, I didn't like anything old. I like Oldsmobiles, but that's, I believe, because I was smart enough to see past the fact that Oldsmobile does, means it's shit, you know? I, it's, that's not true. Uh, Oldsmobiles were prestigious and, and finely built automobiles, and it had been true for a long time. But then when it suddenly didn't become true anymore, when they became honest-to-God cookie-cutter cars. That was it. Yeah, it, it really signaled a downward spiral for them, and there was nobody in upper management at General Motors that was willing to uh, go out on a limb and say, we need to do something so that Oldsmobile doesn't go by the wayside. They just sat by and let it disintegrate, let it go away. That's a pretty good way of actually looking at it, because in the 90s, what was wild is Oldsmobiles were kind of like Critically, they were lauded. People, you know, they still liked them. But the cannibalization from the fact that they were, you know, they were just Malibus or they were just Buick Regals and stuff like that. The cannibalization got to the point where they just couldn't keep making them. The other thing that's missing is the fact that they just were blah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were blah. There was 
nothing that made them stand out stylish wise style wise it was nothing there was nothing special about them style wise you know i mean if you if you put a buick regal next to a cutlass from 1987 let's say they look different enough to be able to say okay that's a buick or that's an olds but if you put a a regal a front wheel drive regal next to a front wheel drive cutlass supreme from like say 89 or 90 they're kind of hard to tell apart and really probably the fucking fenders would fit from one car on the other i mean it, it wasn't it was almost like they weren't trying yeah. anymore it was like ah you know we'll just build this car whatever and some of the models that oldsmobile put out after that i mean uh you've got some listed here that are just awful <laughs> uh, we're at the same part of the write-up <laughs> yeah no well the bravada i mean what is a bravada anyway it's I mean, a chevy trailblazer yeah but i mean what does the word bravada even mean i don't know is well, there's like word? bravado yeah but i mean that's not no. what it is you know if it was bravado i'd be like okay they've got bravado and maybe they put a a fucking small block in the in the s10 blazer and fucking go out and kick kick some ass you know but no it's just a fucking s10 pickup truck you know? yeah pretty much the intrigue was awful well i don't know i never owned an intrigue or an aurora i wasn't interested in owning any of those automobiles back in those in those days i've always liked to to drive old stuff as much as possible i've had some new stuff but uh, uh they tried to rebrand oldsmobile and uh, i gotta say it was pretty much an abject failure it's like when somebody's drowning and you, you hold their head down and then all of a sudden you let go of it and you expect them to come to the surface and live. You know, it's like, no, you fucked this all up and it, they're not going to make it. I don't care what you do. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can give them mouth to mouth resuscitation. They're not going to live. You know, you were holding them down and that's what they did. They held those wheel down. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't breathe. They couldn't do what they do. And they came out with some garbage and they rebranded them and it was terrible. And it was almost as if they were trying to make them fail, and they succeeded. And so now, and, and you know what I think? This is just a, a, a dumb personal thing, but I think that somebody high up in management at General Motors had a beef for Oldsmobile. I think there was something that happened to them in their past where they were dating some girl, and she dumped them because uh, she wanted to go out with a guy who had an Oldsmobile, had a 442 maybe, and maybe that guy was just driving a regular, like a, Pontiac Tempest and she wanted to go out with somebody with a fast car and so here comes a guy with a you know 7442W30 and she's dating him instead and so this guy gets back at that guy by killing a whole fucking brand of cars it's how, that's how petty I think it was you know I mean I can't I don't have any evidence whatsoever you know but I just get the feeling that that's what it was it was somebody who just said you know fuck Oldsmobile I don't like them I don't like them because I'm ugly and drive a Pontiac. And I lost my, <laughs> I lost a girlfriend I had because of that. That's what I think. I think the whole thing was petty as shit, petty and vindictive. That's 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 just my opinion. You know, prove me wrong. I go ahead and prove me wrong. I, I'd be happy to, to find out that it was something else. But, you know, they they ended up coming up with some stuff that that sort of worked a little bit towards the end. I think the Aurora was actually a pretty decent car. I always thought it was odd. It never had an Oldsmobile feel to it. My brother had one, and he loved it, but it just, to me, it wasn't an Oldsmobile. And then there was the Alero. My mother had one of those, and uh, to me, it was just basically a, a what was the Chevy version? Uh, the Cavalier. It was a, the Cavalier. It or was, the Pontiac it was, Sunfire. <laughs> no, actually, the Alero was a little bit bigger than that. It was a, 
it was more like something else that they had but it was uh and it was it was all right it was all right for as a car it had some abs problems but other than that she ended up giving it away because she couldn't drive anymore so i think that they just kind of they kind of squeezed them yeah until they could get rid of them and then what ended up happening was because if you're a car manufacturer and you're making cars and maybe you, you make several brands like general motors does but you want to kind of wind down the production on one of those brands like Oldsmobile you have to figure out a way to sell off the Oldsmobiles you're going to build between the time you announce you're going to stop until the day you actually do and so what they did was and this was crazy they went and they said okay we're going to stop building Oldsmobiles but in the meantime we're going to put a five-year 100,000 mile warranty on them any of them that are remaining and they actually retrofit that warranty to my mother's car because it was bought before they actually announced this. And they upped her warranty to five years, 100,000 miles. And all of a sudden, people started buying the shit out of Oldsmobiles. And it became an enormous lesson for the ignorant dickheads who run General Motors and probably Ford and Chrysler and all the other companies. If you put a really good warranty on something and you stand behind it, like they were going to do with the Oldsmobiles, people will buy them. Because when you put a, a long warranty on something, it implies that the quality is there. Whether it's there or not is another case. Yeah, cue up the Tommy Boy quotes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know, anybody could take a dump in a box and slap a warranty on it. I mean, for Christ's sakes, I got the time, you know. But seriously, if you put a long warranty on something, you're making a statement about that product saying, hey, the quality is so good that I'll take care of it for five years or 100,000 miles. And at the time, warranties were three years, three 36, years 36,000 yeah. miles. Yeah, 336. And if you look at General Motors in the past, I mean, as far back as the 50s, their warranty was minutes long. <laughs> Seriously. No, I'm, I'm not making that up. I have a an, an old uh, 59 Buick. And in the front of the service manual for that car, it says that their warranty was three months and 6,000 miles. I mean, can you imagine that shit today? People will be like, I'm not buying that fucking yeah, thing. Yeah, no way. You know? But back in the 50s, you fixed your own car. It was not that big a deal, you know? If you had a car for six months and a fan belt flew off of it, you didn't drive it back to the dealer or tow it back to the dealer and scream at him for half an hour going, this shouldn't fucking happen. I paid big money for this car. Like they do now. You just go to the fucking auto parts store and buy a new fan belt for $1.20 and you and your son would put it on with a half inch wrench and a 916 socket, you know, and then you'd be good to go. And you didn't have to scream at anybody. You didn't have to be an asshole. You didn't have to be a useless piece of shit, you know? So that really was Oldsmobile's like last truly epic innovation. And it was epic. I mean, because they couldn't keep them on the lots. They said that they were going to shut down the Oldsmobile brand in December of 2000. And in April of 2004, the last Alero came off the line. That's insane. Four years. Four years. And they couldn't keep them on the lots. I know so many people that had Aleros, and they were solid cars. They were good cars. They were well built. They were built in the uh, assembly plant. They were built in the plant right behind the main offices in Lansing, Michigan on Rocket Drive. And they put, a, they put this enormous warranty on them, and they said to people... What that said to people was, hey, we build quality shit. We're going to stand behind it for this long. And people people went crazy. I mean, that's what it came down to is that you had to tell people that you are building a quality product by standing behind it. 
and that is the uh, probably the final innovation that Oldsmobile was able to impart to the automobile industry. And for the most part, it changed things in other dealerships, in other in other Oh, absolutely. It changed their warranties. Absolutely. I mean, even Hyundais have 10-year, 100,000-mile warranties now. Yep, and that sells absolutely because if they... If they tried to, you know, if you went and you asked somebody who owns a Hyundai now, I say, hey, is this a good car? They'd fucking shake their head. Fuck, no, it's a pile of shit, but it still has a warranty on it. And and the warranty's probably one of these deals where you have a deductible or it only covers certain things or whatever. I mean, they're always trying to wiggle out of putting a warranty on stuff. They're always trying to wiggle out of warranting shit, you know? And that's that's one of the things that goes on with the warranties now is you, you do a good job of building a car and you put a long warranty on it and, and people buy it and they're happy with it and, and and then you ride off into the sunset and you wave goodbye after 104 years and and or 100 you know whatever it is 107 years and then people go wow they really did do things right and we just didn't realize it we're all a bunch of stupid motherfuckers because of it that's the thing and and you know i don't like to blast entire groups of people races or ethnicities or even age groups but people alive today that never owned an older Oldsmobile and never experienced how well they drove or, or had had that special feel that you get in an Oldsmobile, those people lost out because it they felt like the car was an old person's car. They felt like the car was something that older people drove and they can't be trusted. They're, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. In reality, we know everything and we have all of the money. So maybe what you ought to do is you ought to start kissing our fucking ass instead of being so fucking petulant all the fucking time. And that was actually one of their big, uh, big advertising things in the 80s was the tagline was, it's not your father's Oldsmobile. And it was very interesting because, you know, it was showing, you know, the kids of famous people like, you know, Deborah Moore, who's the daughter of Roger Moore and Julie Nimoy, obviously Leonard Nimoy's daughter. And, you know, all sorts of people, Lee Starr, obviously of Ringo Lisa Marie Presley was oh yeah no there was a ton of them and it was a huge campaign and it's not your father's Oldsmobile and what ended up happening was it completely kicked back and hit him in the face because the people who were buying Oldsmobiles were their fathers but you know even more than that I mean you know you're talking about this whole feeling of an Oldsmobile and it really it, it rings true because they're part of pop culture you know uh there was a song in 1905 in my merry Oldsmobile about a dude who picks up a chick because his car is kind of fast. Although it's 1905. I couldn't imagine it being that much faster than a horse. And then in the fifties, one of the first rock and roll songs ever rocket 88. Yeah. Performed by our favorite wife beater, Ike Turner. <laughs> no, it was, it was, no, I know. it was actually performed by Ike Turner's Ike Turner's group before he even met Tina Turner. Yeah, and, and you know, I got to tell you, and maybe you don't want to hear this at all. I, I'm pretty sure nobody wants to hear this, but I, I've had sex in an Oldsmobile. I haven't had sex in any other kind of car. So to me, I kind of get a chubby when I see him. It's not really true, but. Uh, oh, man. I, I remember one time, uh, one of the guys where I worked at one of the dealers I worked with had an old uh, 75 442 and uh, 
Uh, it was not the best car in the world, but uh, it was okay. It was clean. And uh, the, the service manager is a woman. She came out and she was giving him a hard time about driving an old car. And I said, listen, you should you should be more respectful of it. You were probably conceived in the back of one of these things. <laughs> she didn't really like that too much, but probably because it was oh. true. And if it had, and if it had been her car, a lot of other things would have been conceived in the back seat too, oh. probably because she was you know, she was kind of a slut. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well. And actually, what's phenomenal about that is they came out with a lot of concept cars that never saw production. And actually, the entire bit that this is called is the cars that Oldsmobile didn't make, but other companies did make. And I mean, some of the stuff that they came up with. So, all right. They had, in 1999, they made this thing called the Oldsmobile Recon, and it was a compact crossover SUV. First of all, how many compact crossover SUVs do you pass on your way to work every single day? Yeah, a couple fucking thousand of them with people staring at their fucking phones, driving them fucking five miles an hour under the speed limit, not signaling their turns. Seriously, there's millions of those things, and they came up with one in the 90s. And they didn't make it, but I mean, all right, here's the tail of the tape. It's all-wheel drive, it's got a three-liter V6 engine, and dual panoramic sunroofs. It sounds like an X5. Exactly. It pretty much is an X5. So then... Which, oh, by the way, we can't keep on a lot. Yeah, no. I love mine. I just got mine fixed, actually. <laughs> Finally got the wheel bearing done and a new CV joint, which it desperately needed. Every time I turned the wheel, I, th I thought it was just going to fall out. It sounded like lug nuts in a blender. Yeah, actually, that's exactly what it sounded like. So, all right, in 2000, they come up with another one called the Oldsmobile Profile. It was another compact crossover with uh, rear sliding doors, five seats, and a supercharged 3.5 liter V6. It had all-wheel drive, traction control, and the gear selector was a dash-mounted rotary knob. All of those things are in cars right now. You might have one in your driveway that has at least one of those things. Yeah, it's kind of funny to, to, to see that gear shift selectors and gear shifters have evolved over the years, and they're all electric now. They're completely electric. There's no mechanical link to a transmission now. And when the battery takes a shit, guess what? You have to put skates on the fucking thing to get it anywhere. Or you have to crawl underneath it and screw a screw up into the tranny to, to take it out of uh, park so you can roll it. It's kind of annoying. Yeah. It's very annoying. Uh, I'm going to stick with the mechanical ones. For, hang on to that as long as you can, but uh, I'm telling you, the next time you have to buy a car, it ain't going to have one. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the amount of like prototype and concept cars that Oldsmobile came up with, even in the 90s, I mean, it's stuff that ended up getting made like there's one it basically just sounds like a honda odyssey and it's like oh it's got a huge you know this is a huge deal because there's an in-car vacuum cleaner that was in 1990 kurt cobain was still making albums when that concept came out actually i think in 1990 it was more in lawns thinking about making it <laughs> he had never met courtney love and that's all that matters now i think that that oldsmobile uh today the existence of it its success and then its ultimate failure, which it's not even fair to call it its ultimate failure because they still lives on in the hearts of many of us. What it, what it is, is is a lesson and it's gonna fall on deaf ears, but it's a lesson to people who are younger that everything that, that existed before you did is not shit. And in fact, is probably great 
and you need to fucking pull your head out of your ass because there's a lot of people out there now and you'll experience this when you get older and trust me you're all going to get older hopefully you don't die young you're going to experience this where people just instantly think that you're stupid and that everything that you like is bad or wrong or not good anymore just because it's old and it's wrong it's wrong and if there's a lesson to be learned here it's that you as the youth of america as millennials or whatever generation you consider yourself from need to look back and say these people did have it going on these people knew what they were doing and they did it well and they did it within the standards that occurred that were available at the time and they used the proper methods and they did things right because other people did things and they were wrong there was other people did things and they were as good but most people didn't do things better. There's so many different things about society today than society even 20 years ago or even 40 years ago. And you can't look back at it and say, wow, that was really bad. Well, it was what we had. It's the way things were. And you wanna know something? Here's the other side of that coin. In 20 years from now or in 40 years from now, you and maybe even your kids are gonna look back and say, holy shit, how did you guys deal with that? How did, how did that happen? How, come, how did you get along with cars that actually touched the ground? How did that work? I don't, I don't see how that even works. I mean, cars now float around and they go everywhere and they never hit anything because they have computers and all that. It's like, look, we had to succumb to gravity at some point in time. I mean, that's really what's gonna happen. People are gonna look back at you someday and think, God, what a stupid piece of shit you are because of the way things were now. So take that as the lesson you can learn from Oldsmobile. They were great cars. They're, in my mind, they're all great cars. Some of them just a little less great than others. And now they're gone because people can't look back at something and say, wow, that was pretty good. They just can't seem to do it. They look back at something that's old, something that represents the past and think, wow, what a, what a bunch of shit. When they look forward and they see where they're headed and think how great it is. And then someday somebody's gonna go, what a load of shit that is. Just get ready for that. When you grow up and you get old, people are gonna treat you like a piece of shit and there's nothing you can fucking do about it, no matter how fucking awesome you really are. And that is the actual story of Oldsmobile. They were awesome and they could still be awesome, but they're not anymore because of people's attitudes towards them. All right, boys and girls, so that is how we feel about Oldsmobile. And that's how we feel about people who love Oldsmobiles. And that's how we feel about people who are never going to get the chance to experience a new Oldsmobile. And it's a sad, sad state of affairs. But it's the world we live in. Everything that's old sucks. Everything that new is new is good. And we're going to move forward from there. Uh, this is uh, our producer, Eric, and myself, your Uncle Jimmy, signing off saying what we always say. See ya. See ya. How about that? That was pretty good. Okay, cool.